Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, I am talking with Christian Avery, who is the North American product manager for Blizzard Technica. And Christian and I are talking about what's going on at Blizzard and everything that's happening over there for, God, it's amazing to say, for next year, the 2023-2024 season. And that includes their overhauled Rustler and Shiva skis, how those skis differ from previous Rustlers and Shivas, where their recent Hustle line of 50-50 skis slot into the mix. And, of course, I couldn't resist talking about the Cochise because, as you'll hear me say, I think this incredibly well-known ski is now actually being slept on. Quite a bit, actually. So I had to, of course, sneak some Cochise talk into the mix here, too. Anyway, I pushed Christian pretty hard on some of the details here, and honestly, as you are about to hear, this dude did real well for his first Gear 30 podcast ever, and I can't imagine that you are going to hear any more specifics about some of the construction details and some of the changes in some of the new Blizzard skis. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by our blister-recommended shop, Willie's, which is the premier ski and board shop in western Pennsylvania. Willie's features a robust junior buyback program, including a hard-to-believe free gear program for kids ages 5 and under. And with two locations in Pittsburgh and another location that's 50 yards from the lifts at Seven Springs Mountain Resort, Willie's is going to take great care of you, whether you are a first-timer or seasoned veteran. Willie's offers advanced tuning capabilities, including Montana machines and much more. That's plenty of reason to check out Willie's, but we also want to highlight that Blister members receive 10% off store-wide and 20% off of boot fittings. So if you are a Blister member, contact Willie's for more info about those deals. And you can also go to willysskiandboard.com and we'll have a link to the Willie's website in the show notes of this episode. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Blizzard's Christian Avery. Here we go. Well, Christian, how are you today and where are you today? I'm well. I'm in uh, West Lebanon, New Hampshire at our, our main office here uh, for Blizzard and Technica. Well, first of all, I got to see you not too long ago here at the Blister Summit, but then it sounds like you've been doing quite a bit of traveling since the summit. Yeah, such is the way in the industry of uh, of what your February <laughs> February March turned into is definitely doing the rounds of uh, of kind of going all over the place because that's when peak skiing is happening. That's sort of the convergence of uh, of bringing the new products to market as well as you're also working on the the next next stuff. So it's been good. It it, it was not that long ago, but it feels like a lot has happened in between for sure. A lot has happened, and pretty recently you were just in Europe. 
Yeah, March ends up also being that time that you're having sort of the the global product meetings where you bring all the country managers together and uh and yeah, are looking at the the next next line there and gathering all the feedback and, and consolidating. So I just got back on uh, on Thursday from from that last lap there. Wow. Okay. Fresh fresh off your Europe trip. Um Yeah, working on getting back in this time zone for sure. <laughs> God, I'm bad at that. I I I feel like I've traveled enough time zones that I should be way better at this than I am and I'm I'm giving myself like an F at uh <laughs> at the at the like reintroductions and getting back on to a, a particular time zone or have you found anything in particular that works best? No particular hack other than for sure going east to west is easier than west to east. Every time I get across the uh, the pond there to the the home office, after a few days, they start asking, like, well, how's the jet lag? And I, well, my answer is usually, well, I can't tell whether I'm tired from the jet lag or just tired, tired, because unequivocally, every time you're over there for meetings, like their 12-hour days, their heavy conversations, like diving into details. So, yeah, I have no no silver bullet for anyone, unfortunately, other than, you know, try to as much as possible, get as much sleep as you can when you can. You are the North American product manager for Blizzard Technica. Um, mm-hmm. I'd like you to actually take us way back and give us a bit of a long running start into how you got into this position. So that's a very strange way of asking, like, tell us a bit about your own ski background and then how that led you to your current role. Yeah, I mean, uh, I grew up as a ski racer uh, on the East Coast here, um, just starting in a learn to ski program. And then uh, that in the East kind of naturally brings its way towards being in Gates at, at one time or another, just getting deeper and deeper into that world kind of through high school. And then towards the end of high school, kind of deciding that, uh, you know, I was so into the setup and the gear and the product side of things that I knew at, at some level, I wanted to work within the ski industry there. So Picked a college, Clarkson University in upstate New York there that um, had a mechanical engineering program as long as well as a global supply chain program that felt in my mind at the time, not knowing necessarily what I was even aiming at within the ski industry to be potentially a stepping stone towards working on the product side of things in the ski industry through luck through happenstance through whatever it was actually doing a uh, applying for a scholarship program um, made a connection with someone at the at Technica group here by the name of Sam Cook who was the president of Blizzard Technica at the time through that connection uh, literally just a, an interview of hey how, do, how does one work in the ski industry how do you even get here um, he had advised to kind of focus more on the the supply chain management side of things with the the degree I was working on at, at Clarkson there most things on the on this side of the pond anyways for the major brands are a lot more right product right place right time than say engineering or technical design details associated with uh material science and things like that that's that's a lot of what happens across the pond there through that connection and through that kind of conversation he actually offered me an internship for the the following summer initially in the what was called the sales operations department which was forecasting um supply management um supply planning side of things did that for two summers um and then before going back for my senior year in college uh along with kind of racing all the way through through college there for Clarkson University got offered a full-time position upon graduation. So that definitely changed the dynamic of your senior year, knowing there's a, a job on the other side. Um, but it was good. You were just drunk all the time your senior year? Bingo. Senior spring was a, a, a fond memory, let's say it that way. <laughs> okay. Um, 
But yeah, then upon graduation, started as the the full time supply planner for for Technica Group, and um, the listeners will pick up the distinction there. Of that meant I was the supply planner for Blizzard Technica and Nordica all at the same time uh, because it's all under one, let's say, umbrella uh, group there. My second year as the supply planner focused just on Blizzard Technica. Um, they kind of tried to get a little bit more nuanced. So Nordica went to a different individual in the building there. The whole time throughout all of that, internships and supply planning, um, I had communicated that like my interests are on the product side of the house. Spreadsheets are great. And this is, you know, <laughs> for sure working in the ski industry, like you have delivered what I asked for, which was point me to a seat in the in the ski industry. Yeah. Um, but th- they knew my interests were product. And, and so I was along the way seizing every opportunity I possibly could to be close to the product people, close to the market. I mean, I went out to Mount Hood and ran the, the race test center for a couple summers. I uh, followed the product managers around the building, annoyed the heck out of them the whole time of asking questions, checking out prototypes that were rolling through and yeah, just learning everything I possibly could. And then it was after my second year of supply planner, that was when uh, a seat on the Blizzard Technica side of things opened up to kind of draft behind the likes of Jed Duke and Bart Tuttle on the uh, product management side of things. And that is now, uh, uh, let's say, six years ago uh, that I've been uh, in a product management role. It has expanded to now North American, um, as you you said at the beginning there. But yeah, that's been where I've been at the last six years here. So six years just in just on the product management side of things. But when did you first connect before you were, you know, that drunk senior, when, like, when did you first start kind of working in some capacity with with the Blizzard Technica group? The first interview I had was uh, the summer after my freshman year of college. And then the summer between sophomore and junior and junior and senior were the uh, two summers of actually working for the Technica group in an internship capacity. What year is that? That was 2014 and 15. And then I graduated in 2016. Gotcha. Okay. And then started 26. Man, you're pushing me on the math right now. So I'm struggling. So not that long after you did start moving to that product management side. Yep. Okay. Pretty rapidly. I, you know, annoyed enough people that that was really where my interests were to, to move in that avenue pretty quickly. Pretty impressive though. I mean, but so I guess, or you just had a particularly interesting and niche set of interests like hi i'm a ski racer who also knows supply chain logistics stuff you know like there's always people listening who are like how do i break into the ski industry and we get that we get that email a lot and i think that's just kind of an interesting story where you were yeah, I'm a ski racer. I'm passionate about skiing, but I also have been learning about and studying like the supply chain stuff, which is maybe the only word we've really heard about the last several years in the ski industry. And that seemed to serve you well. Absolutely. I mean, I remember going to a career fair in college and saying, I'm a global supply chain management major to several other companies that went, eh? What does uh, that do? And then now look now. at us all these years later and supply chain, like you said, is the the hot button topic for every company. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So tough question for you, but I can't wait to hear you attempt to answer this. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a bit about the history specifically of Blizzard, right? Well-known brand. Some of us still 
called the brand Blizzard. I'm working on it. I've done real good so <laughs> far. Um, I will mess it up at some point, I promise. But um, when asked to talk about the history of Blizzard, let me hear you take a stab at this. This is not a company that started, you know, four or five years ago. So what should listeners understand about this brand and its evolution and trajectory? Yeah, uh, you said it well that Blizzard is a brand that has uh, a lot of history associated with it. So uh, immediately after, um, let's say 1946, there was when uh, there was a small furniture company in uh, Mittersill, Austria, that was clamoring for for a necessity uh, and looking for for employment. And the Austrian government there uh, kind of rapidly understood the the growing. Uh, sport, if you will, or at the time, sport in 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 quotation marks of activity leisure that people were looking to engage in. Um, so, saw an opportunity to kind of pivot uh, some people who were looking for employment and uh, and a factory that existed there more towards the ski side of things. I mean, it might sound a little strange for many people to say furniture evolving into skis, but when you think about what skis were, which were literally pieces of wood in a, yep. in a nuanced shape versus having fiberglasses and carbons that we think of yep. uh, now today, it was more of a linear transition at the time. That was kind of the, the history of Blizzard as, as far as this starting up uh, ski brand in the, in the late 40s there that slowly got to itself, got itself to a level where not only had skiing grown, but the brand had understood well enough how to make skis that, I mean, there was a, there is a rich race history associated with Blizzard. I mean, the Franz Klammers of the world that, uh, uh, you know, Kitzbühel is literally around the corner that this marquee Austrian brand put itself on the top of the podium of the biggest ski race in the world um, many years there. So, Finally got to this level in the in the late 80s and early 90s there where Blizzard was kind of at the top of the pile there for, um, let's say, perceived value, performance, quality, Austrian kind of machismo, race heritage. Let's say that was across the pond. On the U.S. side of things, you know, Blizzard had been um, sold through a couple different distributorships, but ne- hadn't necessarily had a, a team that was hands on the steering wheel, this is what the North American, specifically U.S. market needs from Blizzard. So, stop being distributed in the late 90s there. Separate to that, uh, the Technica brand, uh, owned by the Zanata families, uh, had had a collaboration with uh, with Vocal and with Marker there. Um, through a breakup that happened on that side, the Zanatas found themselves looking for uh, a ski brand to go along with it. At the time, Blizzard had kind of fallen off the ways of like, you know, Austrian high horsepower race uh, heritage and and really didn't have much in the way of what we would describe in the North American market as all mountain or free ride skis that would be otherwise applicable here. So from that standpoint, for the Zanatas looking to, to kind of acquire a unaffordable, let's shall we say, uh, ski brand. Blizzard worked quite nicely to, to work into the portfolio there. That was around 2006, seven uh, that the Blizzard brand moved into the Technia group there. And 2007, eight was when it kind of re-entered the North American market there. So the history that I think many, let's say the, the typical consumers now would probably be more associated with that time of Blizzard, where we started with some really wild and crazy, like, let's say, uh, Austrian perception of freeride skis coming from a race background. So you have these just monstrous te- to triple tetanol 58 meter radius, like, you know, definition of freeride skis, if freeride ski came from needing to chop your way down, uh, down Kitzbühel for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But 
through the the kind of leadership of of, of Jed Duke and and Chris Licata, um, who had let's say picked up this at at that time startup brand of of skis, were able to uh, assert some influence, talk about what the North American needs were, and finally, I would say it was 2012 was the first time that like Blizzard had arrived in what I think many people would be more proud of as an execution of products, where uh, Ski Kochi has made it on the cover of of Ski Skiing magazine at the time, no longer uh, a magazine publication but that was what put blizzard really i would say back on the map or or in the minds of of most consumers of today is a brand that had finally uh put together a portfolio of products that uh met the needs in the north american market and were also doing something different than a lot of the other established brands and we could talk about what the free ride and all mountain categories looked at, looked like at the time to to unpack that statement, but Blizzard had arrived in a way that made it unique. And and since 2012, I mean, we've been on a, a pretty unique trajectory as far as growth year over year. Um, performance of products we're pretty proud of, and and a lot of that comes down to sort of that history of of a brand that was not much of anything in 2006. And now a lot of the success has come out of the North American market here. And as a result, the portfolio of products we have today is very US and North American centric, which is a um, a strength I think not necessarily every other brand can say. And it's it comes from the history we've had in, in returning to the US and North American market here. Very well done. I have like 83 <laughs> questions coming from, from everything you just said. But you said we could talk a bit about what the free ride scene looked like. Um, and I think you were talking specifically around that 2010, 11, 12. Talk a bit about that. And then I would just be curious, like compare contrast to where we were around 2012 to where we are now a decade later. Yeah, 2000, that, that kind of late 2000s period of time was right when freeride skiing was, was kind of gaining, let's say, mainstream notoriety. For a long time, it had been, we could name other categories here, but really niche, kind of just like the, the outcast scene of the ski industry in some ways. It was starting to gain a little bit more notoriety through competitions, through film segments, through Warren Miller uh, showcases that were, were bringing more eyes towards that category. And um, skiing at that time ha- had a lot of innovation going on with different materials and shapes. And one of the, the things that was being discovered uh, was Rocker right around that time. And I know that sounds crazy for maybe a consumer that has only just started paying attention to skis recently that Rocker was discovered only 10 years ago. And it's not so much that Rocker was discovered as Rocker was in an effective way was discovered how to be done for, for freeride skis there. So the category at the time was largely defined by skis that were really heavy, really strong, kind of wide race skis. And the rocker had really just been like pressed and bent into those skis. It was kind of a a shape that was forced into the skis because they had all started as full camber. And then someone at some point had picked a certain uh, spot on the ski to try and bend some more shape. That way it could work better in soft snow. What was unique about Blizzard and why uh, Akochi's from a brand that was only selling uh, so many skis in the in the North American market compared to to other brands made it on the cover of Ski Yang magazine was an idea had been created through actually the the likes of uh, the late Arnie Backstrom to try and create a ski that had a little bit more of a mindset of how to build a ski at rest and how to build rocker into those skis such that it wasn't a shape that was forced upon the ski but rather a ski that was designed with that notion 
solution at, at, at its heart. And again, these are concepts that sound a little bit uh, given in our, in our current day and age, but no one was building skis that way. And what that meant for us was a technology called Flipcore, where Again, the notion I'm talking about was wood cores that were all kind of milled with a camber profile, as race skis were, as most skis at that time had been built, and then bent into its final configuration. Arnie's idea was to take as much of the final profile of that ski with the rocker, with the camber, with everything, and mill that shape into the wood core, such that when you then press the ski, it was much more at rest. That wood wasn't trying to return to a different shape than uh, than uh, it had initially been pressed in. And so Kochi's and Bodacious and a couple other models within the line were, were the first freeride skis that Blizzard had built that had that flip core technology and worked in such a way that it was really a unique feeling ski compared to what other freeride skis on the market were at the time. And yeah, that's how we found ourselves uh, as a small little brand on the cover of a, of a major magazine at the time and kind of catapulted us into the um, design notion that we've been using since then, but also like put us in a position to be known as more of a freeride brand than say uh, the race brand that was in the, in the 80s and 90s there. Getting away a bit from the product in particular, I'd love to have you, again, talking less about the specific equipment. And that was a nice sort of history and origin story of Flipcore. By the way, you you, you reminded me, I think on Blister, we had an article that was basically called like, what the F is Flipcore? <laughs> and I, I honestly still, God, that was a, a, over a decade ago, but uh, I still... I'm trying to wrap my head around that concept, I think, but that that's neither here nor there. The scene today, the free ride scene today versus where it was 10 years ago, do you have specific thoughts about, oh, we're seeing athletes wanting or looking for something a bit different now versus where we were a decade ago? Your take on that. I genuinely think we're, I mean, we could divide subcategories within the freeride world, but from a, let's say, abject uh, freeride category in general, I think we're seeing a, a move into the next phase of freeride skiing because all the skis I described had kind of come from this place of like, we're going to ski as hard, as fast, charging these conditions, put the din up to 30 and like, you know, the the success is making it out the other side on this gnarly line. Yeah. We then moved into this really aspirational kind of free flowing soft snow, like beautiful turns and, and majestic skiing, uh, let's say period of time in freeride. What we're seeing on the, what it feels like we're seeing, in my opinion, on the freeride world tour now is a move more towards if you want to call it freestyle or an integration yeah. of more more tricks, more airs, more jumps, more more kind of backcountry booter or gap jump type of mindset to to freeride skiing. I mean, one of the most uh, iconic Instagram reels from this entire last winter was someone throwing a double backflip in competition off of yep. a gigantic rock face there. And that's yep. something that you definitely would not have seen 10 years ago in the freeride world tour. And that to me, I think is the next phase we're, we're heading to. And I'm not even entirely sure what you'd call that subcategory or, or uh, evolution within skiing but yeah more people taking off switch throwing uh tricks in the air more more kind of uh freestyle mindset to that free ride skiing i think is the new phase we're looking at here it's the freestyling of free ride exactly how yeah. you like that <laughs> you you can use that you can use that <laughs> perfect this is not at all what we're supposed to be talking about but i'm do it anyway because you know i'm the host um the coaches again which you've described so well 
I was thinking about this the last couple of days because, you know, I knew we'd be talking about this stuff. I was like, I now feel like the Cochise is being slept on because, you know, there was the original Cochise. It got a lot of well-deserved attention. A number of skiers, including myself, freaking loved that ski. Then there were some iterations, some tweaks to that ski, and there's probably not a consensus on this. Some people may have liked whatever, well, let's call it version 2.0, more than version 3.0, some stuff like that. We weighed in on those things on Blister. But getting back on the current iteration of the Cochise 106, I'm like, this ski is so freaking good. And for a mountain like Crested Butte, I've been thinking about, because look, I don't always get to the ski, the skis that I would choose for myself if I didn't have to review 200 pairs of skis every year. I was like, this ski is so good for this particular place, steep, techie terrain. Um, I have many days that I find myself just thinking back, like today would be a perfect Cochise day. But I, I'm just curious to hear you on this. Do you agree with my idea that while the Cochise had this explosion, it's gone through its iterations, I now think the current Cochise is back to being an exceptional, exceptional ski. Do the sales show that? Is this one of those skis where you're like, well, yeah, we still really like it here at Blizzard, but... We're making a whole lot of other things that we're excited about. Where is the Cochise today um, in the minds of those, you know, at, at the company? The, 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 it's, it's an awesome question because, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a world where other product managers or people who, who see the numbers ever would sit down uh, around a table with drinks like and look at the numbers in front of one another of, of each brand skis like the coaches is almost the case study at least in the, in the blizzard world of like watching one model of ski that obviously we've iterated and made our own changes to but like it's position within the industry and it in the industry adoption or what we're about to talk about like lack of adoption around that ski is the case study for how how skiing has changed so i mean we're talking about a ski here that went from on the cover of skiing magazine that we were selling thousands of pairs of to now literally, you know, regardless of what the construction is and the changes we've made, like it's a very much what you described sort of a, if you know, you know, type of ski that like those that have gotten on that ski, those who who know what it's for are able to have it within the quiver along with other skis, yes. love that ski unequivocally and have their yep. days that they, they swear by it and, and kind of find nothing else in the, in the industry from other brands that like could do the same thing in some ways. That being said, from a sales perspective, like that ski is is next to irrelevant. I mean, it's few, it's a few hundred pairs, but I mean, the reason it's still on the line is because Blizzard unequivocally is and wants to be the brand that builds those products for the specific user groups that they can't get elsewhere. And so the commitment from us uh, is to always have that ideology that like, you know, again, choose whatever category we want to label skis above 100 in the waist, but like have those skis that people can go 100 miles an hour through the technical conditions can, you know, get out there when the conditions are weird and tough. And like, it's not, yes. it's not a soft powder day. And yes. so that's why 
even if it's only a, a couple hundred pair of skis a year, like there's no lack of commitment at any level. And, and I'm talking about like the European level where anything wider than 80 in the waist is a powder ski or domestically here to like not have a, a, a double or triple TI ski that's wide in the waist that allows people to do those things that we know are, are important and, and are not necessarily, even if they're not the mainstay of, of the industry in the category right now are skis that are important for, for certain user groups. So, you know, to bring that all the way back around to what you said, like, I love the Kochi ski. There are tons of people that uh, uh, <laughs> unequivocally swear by it all day, every day. And I'm not sure I can necessarily say people are are sleeping it because I'm sleeping on it. Because on the other side, like, I get it. It's a, sometimes it's a 192 centimeter long, like 106 waisted, heavy, burly ski that like you definitely need to be a, a skier and drive it. But at the same time, like, there's a little bit of that pride in, in offering a ski like that still and having it in the line and, you know, having a reason to have a Kochi's 106 and a Rustler 10, even if they're in yes. a similar waist width world there. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, I like, I guess this is a very subjective statement, but I was about to say, it's not that demanding of a ski. Like these things are relative, but I don't like skis that just kick your ass if you make the slightest mistake. And I'm sorry, but that is not a Kochi's 106. So no, I don't think that low intermediates should be grabbing a Kochi's, but someone, an advanced to expert skier who's got is willing to provide a bit of physical input to the ski. Like if that thing was harsh and demanding, I wouldn't be into it, you know? And so I don't know, I'm, I'm going to put a link to my review in the show notes of this episode that is not supposed to be about the coaches because I just like, <laughs> let's, let's not sleep on this, you know? And, um, and I, I, I've just found myself thinking there's, there's people and I, we know how trends work and some new ski gets a lot of buzz and attention and we, we understand cycles, but I just found myself thinking like the number of days this year where I'm like, we do this a lot when we're out testing, like, well, what would I most want to be on today? And that ski for me is still um, one I think about a lot. Let me just put it that way. Well, I'm glad to hear you say it for sure. And there's definitely it's it's one of those skis now too that when you're on it or you see one in the lift line, you almost like want to have the conversation. With That's the person. right. Like, hey, you, you get it too. You understand what what's going on here. That it's not just all about the the soft, easy, playful. You know, like lower yeah. speed limit skis. Like these skis are are the double ti chargey, but chargey can also be accessible in that way where it's not necessarily demanding, but has That's that right. high high speed limit. Like. Those skis, you know, I think are just the way the industry has gone are, are not in the mainstay anymore, but are so important to be able to, be, you know, ski certain lines, do certain things, get in certain conditions that that you're describing that obviously existed in Crested Butte this year quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. Back to, I guess, what is sort of supposed to be our, you know, the business for the day. Um, I'm going to have you walk us through... Um, just a kind of overview of Blizzard's lineup and the different kind of segments. Um, that I think we can do pretty quickly because then we are going to move into and I want to spend more of our time working through the niceties of some of the tweaks and upgrade and new things in the lineup. Um, so a bit of a tall task there, but let's start with just the overview. Sure. Yeah, so I'll start on kind of narrowest, go to widest, and, and touring there. For us, we have two lines of frontside skis. There's kind of the, the race-inspired line called Firebird that um, shares some of the molds and constructions coming from the, the international race side of things. Then we have a Thunderbird line of skis that uh, incorporates 
some other technologies that still make them really high performance, but like you described them as more of an all day carving ski versus uh, jumping in the gates or only skiing for a few hours really hard. Then we have uh, our, our kind of mainstay collections in the all mountain line there, which uh, are, are the Brahmas and Bonafide and Akochis that we've spent some time talking about here, as well as Black Pearl, which at this point is uh, is a brand unto itself and one of yep. the most iconic skis of the decade for for sure. There's three of those in there. Then we have our free ride line of skis in Russler and Shiva, um, which will I think we'll spend quite a bit of time here, so we won't talk too much about those. That's kind of what I would define as the the resort category of skis. There's kind of the four different lines that you have there. Then we have everything that I would, uh, would describe as sort of the umbrella of the walking world. So we have a collection of hustle skis, which would be sort of a, a backcountry or a free ride type of touring ski there, uh, coming out of the now old uh, rustler molds there in three widths. Those kind of split the uprights between our free ride collection and then our true touring collection, which is zero G. And zero G is a collection of skis that go from 105 down to 85 and are kind of that free touring to touring world where weight is really a, a priority. And then there's a small subline of, uh, of really light touring skis um, that fall below the 1,000 gram world there. Still under the zero G umbrella, but a completely different construction. Then after that, it's it's rental and junior. And I think that's not, uh, not what we came to talk about here. So let's then talk about some of the new stuff, um, new skis, new designs. What do you have for next winter? Yeah, this has uh, uh, been a long time coming for us. I mean, we've got uh, we've talked around sort of those free ride type of skis, and for us that that line of skis that is that mainstay, the one that isn't uh, if you know you know category or, or model within the line for us is Russell and Shiva. I mean, those are our. Um, I would like to say it feels a little braggadocious, but iconic uh, uh, line of free ride skis that have numerous accolades that we're really proud of, but have really represented the brand. Let's say at a at a um, global level with recognition on the Fruit World Tour and and amongst people who are doing that kind of big mountain uh, soft snow type of skiing that we've talked about at length here. So we had initially launched the the version of Rustlers and Chivas we had back in the uh, the um, 16, 17, 17, 18 uh, kind of collections there. It initially had just been two models, the 11 and 10, and then later on the, uh, the narrow one, the nine was added there. And they have gone aside from graphics, basically unchanged for, for seven years. So yep. knowing that uh, in this particular collection, we were updating uh, Rustlers and Chivas, we've been working for three years on what the future of that looks like, because, you know, despite uh, um, a lot of changes and a lot of innovations that have happened in the last seven years across the industry across other collections within our line. I mean, we still felt like we had a really high level of performance with the the Russell and Chiba skis that we'd had previously. So it felt like no small task to try and raise the bar of a category of skis that needed to to win for our world tour stops, needed to to represent ourselves on the highest stage there. But at the same time, was now a category that we're we're selling quite a few pairs in and like have a lot of different demographics that are getting on those skis, different ability levels, and and wanting to make sure that we didn't somehow close the door on on uh, those sales, those skiers that had fallen in love with Russell Shiba. But at the same time, again, you know, speak to that that kind of tip of one percent that are skiing some of the craziest, gnarliest lines in the world there. So, hmm. yeah, what's new for next year is uh, is six brand new models, full ground up, uh, brand new rustlers and chivas across the entire line there so yeah quite a quite a bit of new for next year for sure so when those rustlers first came out that was 1617 
Yeah, they were replacing Peacemaker and Gunsmoke um, yeah. as the kind of prior free ride skis. And it was a hard departure from what those skis have been. They were no metal. They were kind of big twin tips. They had, they were coming from the mindset of uh, an evolution or a half step of what free ride skiing had been, which is like bookending itself of like you've got your triple TI and then you've got your ultra soft snow playful. And yeah. Russell Chiva at the time, it feels a little silly to say now, but we're like occupying the space in between of like, you know, it's got some metal, but at the same time, like it is definitely a soft snow oriented ski. So this is what I'm curious, because I feel like maybe you are not going to agree with me on this. When the when the 10 came out and then when the 9 and 10 came out, it seemed to me that those were positioned kind of like the, oh yeah, you've heard about the Bonafide and the Brahma and the Bodacious and the Cochise. Oh, you want a bit less ski than that? You want to have a bit more fun or something a bit more manageable and easygoing? Like, t- frankly, the way I kind of thought of it was these are the Rustler series was for people that basically weren't looking to go as hard or maybe weren't at the same um, expertise level. That's not how I hear you talking about at least the the new Rustlers that we're going to get to. But are you saying that even on those models, you were not internally saying, okay, the Cochise, Bonafide, bodacious that's for kind of the advanced experts the rustler series was for the more inner intermediate side of things it do you get the question man i need mm-hmm. more coffee today I, I apologize but um no it's all good what from a let's say a sales perspective of where the bread was buttered in 16 2016 and 2017 uh as well as where a lot of the people were coming from i mean like we talked about my history kind of at the beginning of this where i was coming from that race background and was fully infatuated with all the brahmas bona fides coaches mm-hmm. like that that go fast press your edges ski the front of the ski type of ski and so I don't think I ever heard anyone when when Rustler and Chiba were launched and replacing Peacemaker Gunsmoke somehow talking about them as as a less than ski for intermediates, but they were for sure talked about in terms of here's the category of skis that want to feel their edges and and are precise, and here are the loose, playful, soft snow oriented ones that may that kind of description may bring its own baggage associated with it or a, a perception of, of ability. But for sure, we were thinking about the, the the category and I'm talking about kind of that nebulous all mountain freeride world yeah. in terms of, of, of skier types, for sure, of the person yeah. who wants the metal in their skis and wants a, a shape and a rocker profile such that when they get to the front of that ski and they roll it up, they feel that ski engage immediately versus what Russell and Shiva, and we can talk about the, the technologies that, uh, that support this, uh, were intended to be much more forgiving and playful and not have that immediately like hook up and go. They were intended to smear. I mean, through the, the DRT that was used there, like the, the point was that the front of the ski did not engage right away when uh, when you rolled it up on edge there or threw it sideways going 60 miles an hour down a, down a steep face there. So, yeah, inherently, I'm sure that that sets it up with some of the performance you're talking about. But at the same time, I mean, what we'll talk about with the, the new skis here was how to build in the notion of, of skis that 
had that stability, had that balance, had the playfulness of, of skis that feel like they have metal in them, but at the same time, like have that stop snow, uh, playfulness and ease of use, shut it down capability. Um, but, but like exactly what we're talking about, I mean, I, I mentioned all of the effort put in to make sure that the 11 and, and the other models have that top end performance. I mean, give not, try to give nothing up on the, on the very highest end there at the same time as we've also evolved to a place where it's not like the free ride skis or this niche, like couple ski category that are only selling a few thousand pair. They very much moved into this, uh, this space where all mountain and free ride is the, the central ideology of blizzard. Now you can pick, but let's talk about the rustler nine previous nine to current nine or new nine, or we start with the rustler 10, which of the two do you want to start with? And I'd love mm. to have you take us through like, this is what we did new and different. Let's, let's maybe start with the 10, uh, even though I think it's the one that maybe got the second most change, but I think it might be um, the easiest example since we've talked a lot about coaches and we've talked about the, the kind of mindset for the skis. So the, the previous Rustler 10, uh, as we've, we've sort of talked around a little bit here, but to, to go straight at it, um, is a 102 wasted ski that gets to 104, uh, at the, at the longest lengths there. It was intended, like we said at the beginning, to, to be one of those skis that was really soft snow oriented to kind of be that big mountain powder, uh, but a versatile enough ski. I mean, we were putting metal into that ski for the intention that, uh, for, for all of our Western listeners here, like it could by and large be a, a daily driver, but maybe not in the, in the truly firmest conditions, a la ergo why we have a Kochi ski. The way it was doing that was, uh, of course, with a very free ride shape. So it had a little bit of camber underfoot, but then quite a bit of rocker in the tip and tail. It then had a uh, six millimeter sheet of tetanol that tapered towards the tip and tail. So it's a full piece edge to edge underfoot and then tapers down to almost a point towards the tip and tail. And the notion of having that metal taper was to provide that stability and power underfoot, but then really allow the tip and tail of those skis to be torsionally soft. And torsionally soft, I mean, everything we've described here where you get to the front of the ski, you roll it up and, and a stout ski with a lot of torsional strength, a la race skis or, or typical all mountain skis, is looking to bite and engage. We wanted to achieve the exact opposite where a ski that had some some presence out in the front of it, it was was stable and controlled but when you turned it sideways or tried to engage it it had a little bit of more easygoing torsionally soft playful type of feeling and the and that we referred to it as drt which stands for dynamic release technology that that i would <laughs> assume anyone really took that acronym to heart and, and got a tattoo of it or anything <laughs> uh but, but that was the notion of why that that layer of metal was tapered. We'd messed around with uh, with different wood configurations to kind of support that of like how chargey, how playful, how light, how easy to, to make it. But that was the notion of the, the, the metal layup and the construction of those skis to contrast what we had on the other side, which was that Kochi ski, which is yeah, everything we've said about a precise and, and stable ski. This was the, the soft and playful and easy ski. So going to the, the newest versions here, what we wanted to try and do, which was uh, may sound simple, but it's certainly no easy task, is to try and take the through lines that are sort of the best of, of appreciated features of the current one, keep all of that because it wasn't the goal to to reposition the ski closer to all mountain or closer to a backcountry. We liked its, its positioning within our line, but somehow solve some of the other challenges that were actually created by the, the technology that we use. So the that tapering piece of metal that I was describing 
from our testing and actually some of the feedback, because we've obviously had plenty of time to really get to know these skis quite well, uh, kind of does its job too well. So to the extent that like the tip and tail of a, of a rustler ski and a Shiva ski for sure as well is almost too playful in some situations. So to the extent that for some people, a rustler 10 is, is a daily driver, they're going to encounter variable conditions or, or really grabby, not so soft, playful snow. And what we were finding is that because of the way the rocker profile on that ski is where the, the rocker starts just in front, typically of the, uh, the, where the metal ends. And because that metal does end at a certain point, Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a hinge in those skis that if you really did drive the front of those skis, the way you you can with full metal skis, you could almost get it to fold and kind of plow. And that's almost best represented in some film segments by uh, Marcus Caston and and Warren Miller in some ways where you can see he's on like a technical spine with some like kind of weird, heavy, but still soft Alaskan snow. And you can kind of just see a rustler like plowing a, a kind of longer turn than maybe the radius or the side cut would would suggest and that's fully that that piece of metal ending at a certain point and uh and being too playful or, or not enough support for that rocker profile so what we did with the new ones was try to take that torsionally soft mindset of of how do we make a ski that is playful and easy doesn't bite immediately when you roll it up on edge but make it more consistent tip to tail and not have that that hinging point so what you'll see with the new skis is two independent pieces of metal that run up either side of the ski, but then are not connected to the tip and tail. They happen to be four millimeter pieces of, uh, of tetanol, and then there's a six millimeter piece directly underfoot. But the important feature of all of that is none of those three pieces of metal that I've described are connected either at the tip and tail or the center of the ski there. What that allows for in the very tip and tail of the skis is that torsional softness that we've described a couple times here, while still being stable. You no longer have a, have a point within the ski that a material is ending and, and there's still demand of the ski happening up there. And then back towards the middle of the ski where there's that third piece of metal underfoot in the rustler skis only, uh, you, it's not connected to those other two pieces, which allows for the, some, some shearing within the wood core there. So as you've got a ski that's kind of bent Bending and, and, and not necessarily hooking straight up. It's not bending in a linear fashion as you're engaging that turn. So you need to have some materials in there that can kind of shear over one another. And through that testing and discovery of, of many different metal configurations that we could go back to from the, the prototyping process, we found a configuration of metal that did feel like it brought that through line of uh, torsionally soft, playful, easygoing skis that were soft snow oriented, but with much more stability and control. And in specifically the case of, of people who push the skis in a way that were finding that, that hinge point, a much higher top speed of those skis. It didn't feel like they suddenly got nervous and inconsistent at the, at the farthest end there. So that was some of the through lines of specifically the metal layup. Of course, if we want to talk about the, the rocker profile of those skis, the 10 is another good example where, um, Initially, when the 10 was launched, it was kind of the little brother and the little sister on the Shiva side of the 11. The the focus was like, how do we get the widest free ride, big mountain, soft snow ski? So the 10s were done sort of in the shadow of those 11s a little bit. The result of that for, again, what we've described a couple times here as a a more everyday driver type of ski for for people in the West is that it kind of had a lot of rocker for uh, a a daily driver, especially when the conditions aren't as soft as you were maybe hoping they were the conditions are a little weird and for a ski the rustler 10 at only 102 to 104 millimeters wide so right 
Absolutely. So with the new ones, in addition to all the the metal layups I've talked about, the rocker profile changed quite a bit with those skis. What we did was extend the the on-snow contact length by about mm, 25 millimeters or so um, out a little bit further. And I'm speaking specifically about the the kind of reference size of 180 there um, to have more contact on snow, steepen the camber profile. That way you've got a much more kind of um, traditional feeling all mountain ski underfoot, but then really steepen that rocker profile at the tip and tail there Mm -hmm. to still have that soft snow, easy releasing, playful type of ski. Um, So again, like trying to pull some of those appreciate features from the, the previous one, but also clean up some hinging, some kind of skiing a little bit short, some, uh, let, let's say lack of hard snow integrity in that 10 there. So yeah, those are between the rocker profile, uh, the camber and the metal are kind of the biggest changes that went into the new one there. Um, in addition to the incorporation of, of true blend, but, uh, maybe we'll spend more time talking about true blend in the nine. Cause I think that's a interest, more interesting story. Maybe now I already said, I'm a huge coaches fan. So if you're a huge Cochise fan, like, okay, that original uh, Rustler 10, not built for me, right? Some That's for somebody else. And, and we try to be real clear about that. Some people, you know, want this certain thing. Others are looking for this other thing. That's fine and good. But when you are talking about the hinge points on that original Rustler 10, the way that I would describe, and I thought that was an excellent description, by the way, uh, of the whole, like what's happening there and the metal ends. And, and now we get into the rocker portions. I always felt like with the Rustler 10, and it's why I did not like that ski personally, is that ski just felt like it wanted to actually hook up on me and turn when I didn't want it to. You're describing that as that hinge point, that plowing, but especially in steeper terrain, um, I don't want my ski to turn when I overturn when I don't want it to. That's when you can start hide siding and that stuff gets scary. So to me, I would describe it in the language of that ski is way too turny for me. And I've actually got now like, I think eight days on the new Rustler 10. And that feels very different to me. And it, it feels way more balanced to me. Like, I I did not like the Rustler 10. Like, felt like it was kind of scary, was doing things that I didn't want it to when I didn't want to do it. And I'm like, the funny, the funny thing is, maybe this is a good analogy, I've actually been teaching somebody that I'm dating to ski. She's She was a never ever. This is, we've, Cody Townsend and I have talked about this, like, not something one should ever do, but like, I was, yeah, tating, taking someone out, you know, uh, and trying, attempting to teach them how to ski. And so I was going out my last three days on the Rustler 10, where I'm like skiing switch and like kind of saying, hey, look at this or focus on that. And then she would go inside and then I would hurry up and go like smash laps off the Silver Queen. And it's like, I was actually comfortable on all of this, skiing on really low angle slopes with someone new to skiing. And I'm just doing all the things instructors do, ski and switch slow speeds, blah, blah, blah. And then going up and being like, all right, I have time to like crush six fast laps right now. And I don't feel like I ever would have been comfortable doing both of those things personally on the previous Russell Russell 10. 
And that's precisely what I was doing like yesterday. That's, so. that's amazing to hear because I mean, it's the, it's the inherent challenge of building any ski, but specifically skis that, that need to cater to that high end and get into crazy terrain that people only see in pictures and, and, and in movies and things. But at the same time, like sell a ski to a person that, you know, they're skiing in, in Utah, the snow's soft and they want a playful ski, but like they're not necessarily the strongest skier and how yep. to have that window yep. super wide that you can, you can yeah. have that uh, sort of intermediate performance, but then, you know, the person who can take it to 11 and push it as hard as possible, like have that. So it's incredible to hear that that's, that's uh, been your experience and is, yeah, I mean, I think any manufacturer <laughs> can speak to that is, that is the challenge every time with building any ski, whether it's a free ride ski or a, or a rental ski, even in some yeah. cases. Well, but then you do have certain other products where you're like, you know, in the Firebird series, you're like, we're not trying to build here a ski that somebody who is brand new to skiing is going to go have the best time on. Like specific tools sometimes uh, you know, for for specific jobs. Um, but in the case of that rustler, it does feel like you are attempting to go broad here. We need to, we're going after a very versatile tool that a lot of people are going to be able to hop on and, and enjoy. And to your point, I'm like, that's easier said than done. Yeah. I mean, the, the Firebird skis would, uh, the sales of the Firebird skis would directly tell you, we've done a great job of like positioning as those, the, the tip of 1% type of skis. Hmm. Okay. Can we talk about the Rustler 9? Because I've also spent time on this ski and um, I'm curious to hear you describe the differences. Yeah. Rustler 9, uh, I like it, it shares obviously the name and, and many of the through lines that we've talked about with the, the Rustler 10 to new Rustler 10. But I, I do kind of want to describe the Rustler 9 in the new version as almost a new ski. I mean, it changed waist width in a pretty significant way. It had been 92 underfoot in the, in the current version that people are familiar with. And the notion of doing that at the time was we had a bona fide 98 and a Brahma 88 that kind of bookended where not only like the, the kind of ideology of the brand was, but also like where free ride or all mountain type of skiing had been with, with very much focus on double TI skis there. So we put a 92. It served a lot of, of, of what you talked about. Like it met the needs of the, the intermediate skier there who wasn't looking for all the horsepower or kind of edge precision of, of, of a bona fide or a Brahma there. Moving, or let's say seven years now that the, the Russell and Shiva skis have been in the line. That feels like it's changed quite a bit. There are quite a few more people looking for a playful, um, easy ski in that 90-ish waist world yep. that are absolutely good skiers. They are not yep. just intermediate, yep. like yep. don't want to feel their edge skiers. So what we determined from, from a lot of insights and, and wanted to do with specifically the Rustler 9 was move it a little bit more into the free ride category from a waist width persona, but also importantly kind of set up the performance of that ski of it wasn't a stuck in between a Bonafide and a Brahma. It was very much like this is a relevant model that could go head to head with a Bonafide from a let's say a performance and an ability standpoint, but it's just catered to different conditions Styles. and different preferences. Yeah. So that one, let's say, even if it didn't get uh let's say as as it, it got plenty of change, like some of the most change within the line, but a lot of it is just the positioning and the notion of what we wanted that ski to be. So compared to the old one, I mean, it is far more consistent. It, it's far more balanced. It's far more um, catered towards that really wide window we were talking about that someone with, you know, all the ability to get to the front of the boot and drive that ski can jump on a Russell 9 now and be like, hell yeah, like this is 
a ski I can go as fast as I possibly want. I can I can throw it sideways when I need, and I feel confident and in control. So that's part of it going from 92 to 96 in the waist and pushing it a little bit more into that free ride space. But the other part of that too is taking what we've really understood from Trueblend. Trueblend was launched only a few years ago, initially in the all mountain line of skis. It's a wood core technology that, that we had launched to try and better allow ourselves to control the flex profile of skis. So this is now talking about a different category, but the all mountain line of skis is definitely a very crowded space. And what we were looking to do was, was to really refine the execution of our skis there and allow ourselves to, to create skis that have that performance and that energy and that strength, but are also a little bit easier to use, have that double TI that can be pushed and, and everything, but allow it to have that wide window. And what we'd done was developed a wood core technology that take, took the, the stringers within a wood core that have typically run full tip to tail uninterrupted and uh every brand at this point has put different configurations of beach and poplar and balsa and and polonia and every different wood core substance you can imagine next to one another but no one had really broken up those stringers from full tip to tail and the only thing you can really do to to control the flex profile of a ski had been to mill it in different configurations really thin out those tips and tails or leave the middle really stout whatever whatever feeling you wanted to achieve with it TrueBlend for us allows us to now basically gear any wood core with any material up to 11 if we want the, the maximum level of horsepower within that ski or dial it back for the, say, the shortest sizes within a model. Obviously, you know, uh, someone who's jumping on a Russ R10 in a, in a 164 probably has different expectations of what they mm. want the ski to do than, than someone jumping on the 192, for example. So TrueBlend kind of uh, has unlocked that next layer of, of development or precision uh, at the model and size level within every category there. And so to bring it back to the, the Russler 9, the Russler 9 specifically, I feel like has benefited the most from that learning and from the adaptation of moving it from where it was within the line to giving it now our, our true blend wood core, which allows it to have a ton of power, a ton of strength, a lot of beach and, and kind of high density energetic wood right underfoot, but still maintain that free ride feel uh, in the tip and tail there, which allows it to be soft and playful and stable for sure. Um, and then, of course, it gets the, the the flux form metal layup that we've described in the 10 there. It gets a different version of it um, with more metal. Each, each uh, different model, 9, 10, 11, gets less metal than the last yeah. 11 being the softest snow-oriented least metal, 9 getting the most. And in this case, getting quite a bit more metal than, uh, than its previous version of that Russler 9 there. So very much takes it into a different category. And again, I kind of want to bring it back to like, if, if someone had tried the Russler 9 before and felt like, yeah. mm, you know, I get it, yep. but not for me. This is like such a new model to to get on and give a, a second chance to if if they didn't like the last one. Yeah, and again, I said like I wasn't a big fan of the previous Rustler Ten. Same with the previous Rustler Nine, and um, I I completely endorse what you just said. Like if you were somebody who tried that Nine before and you're like not for me, try the new one try the new one. And again, I like this is where it gets subtle. We're not saying it is not a firebird. It is not a mid 90 millimeter wide monster ski, right? It's not. But but balance is the word I would use. I think it's a beautiful carver. It was funny, my anecdote on this one at the Blister Summit. Um I went out one morning cuz you know, we were skiing with different groups and so it's like skiing with low intermediates you know this lap and then the next lap i'm jumping in with a group and we're headed to phoenix spellbound and 
And that's exactly what happened when I was on the Rustler 9. And so the I went out with some people and it was like, hey, it was like day four. They were like, we're a bit tired. I'm like, cool, it's Bluebird Day. Let's just chill. We'll like, you know, just ski some groomers under the paradise lift. And that's what we were doing. And it was like, man, like I'm pushing this thing harder and harder. And then we saw some people and they're like, Phoenix Spellbound just opened. Come on, we got to go. And so I'm like, cool. Like I was not planning to take the Rustler 9 out into some of Crested Buttes, like most extreme terrain. That was not my intention, but that's what I did. And, you know, um, the snow, we had really good snow, as you know. So yeah, normally I would have been on a wider ski going into that, like pow and chop, but the ski still was holding up. You know, I wasn't like, I am, I can't, I'm scared right now. I don't know what's happening. This is absolutely the wrong tool for the job. So, um, I can, I, I, once again, kind of ran that gamut on the nine. Um, maybe not that dissimilar to what I was doing on the 10. That's awesome. And yeah, I mean, the, the summit was a good example for us too, where, I mean, on the brand side of things, like it's always interesting, the feeling and excitement that, that goes along with, uh, with launching a, a, a revamp line of skis versus having something that you feel like you've never had before in the line. Mm-hmm. And like as, as much energy and enthusiasm as like everyone across the whole company has felt about launching brand new wrestlers and brand new Shivas, like the nine in particular is, is kind of carried a, a special amount of excitement. And especially at the te- at the summit there, like handing that nine to people of like, I don't care what you just asked for. You're going out on the nine. Like you got to try this thing. Huh. Uh, was yeah, it's it's definitely fun, and and I'm excited uh, what we were able to achieve with that rustler and cheap at night for sure. All right, one more to go here. Uh, rustler eleven. What should we know? Yeah, Russell 11 and Shiva 11 for sure is is uh, the amalgamation of every challenge we've talked about so far about like how to take a ski that is beloved by many in in some core user groups, uh, but also represents like the tip of what we need athletes to be able to to do certain things on that that no one else should ever in their their right mind or reasonably expect of a of a pair of skis so we had uh numerous athlete summits with marcus Caston, conry lundin kate zellif chad sayer tom fight like name the gamut of people who use rustler 11 in every day in every condition they have multiple pairs mounted five millimeters five centimeters forward five centimeters back like they know that ski inside and out and like if we mess it up like we're going to have some very sad and probably pissed athletes on our, yeah. on our hands there. So in the end, I mean, everything we've talked about as far as things we were trying to solve with Russler 9 and, and Russler 10 there were similar things actually that, that they had on their list of things that, you know, as much as they love a Russler and a Shiva 11, they, they too would want solved. And so it was cool and, and interesting um, kind of going through the athlete testing process here and bringing them different iterations. We kind of met up on Mount Hood at one point, skied what is definitely not like, you know, ideal Russler Shiva conditions on a, on a salted glacier there. And then had a couple different sessions in Jackson Hole there and caught some conditions really well. And, you know, working with athletes is, is funny in the standpoint of like, they have no commercial incentive or sales need to like change a ski. So when you're like, right. Hey, we're changing this thing you love. There's definitely a layer of like, why, yeah. <laughs> why, yeah. why would you do this? So it was cool <laughs> bringing that exactly. It was cool bringing them a, uh, a Russell 11 towards the, the second and third iterations there that like, you know, once they jumped on kind of understood the new feeling, like got in some conditions were like, okay, we're on to something here that you've you've started to solve uh, some of the weak points of a Russell and Shiva 11 um, and then moved it kind of to the, the next tier there. So let's say 
purely rocker profile standpoint, we actually, even though we'd experimented in a couple different directions, we landed in a very similar place rocker profile wise to the the current one we had. We, we experimented around trying to get the, the ski to rise out of the soft snow a little bit more, allow it to sit in if you wanted to sit in a little bit more. And in the end, like kind of the, the in-between, it was, was still where they felt like they wanted to be for dropping off cliffs, for charging hard through, through steeper lines and soft snow. So Rocker profile, meaning rocker and, and camber, of course, um, is quite similar to where we've been. What changed significantly was that that metal layup. So it brings some of the same ideology of the the flux form or DRT uh, evolution that we've mentioned here, but the, with the thinnest tetanol strips of of any of the lineup there. So this is the the thinnest uh, far and away uh, of any of the models there, with only fifteen mil uh, thick strips of metal at the very end there. Um, important with Russell 11 was one of the discoveries specifically from working with like Tom Pfeiffer who jumps off of everything that you can see was we actually left the strips of metal in the tail of the ski a consistent width because he mm. needed that support as he was mm. landing in the back and hopefully soft snow but definitely sometimes not to like right. not have necessarily get kicked forward or, or pushed out of position there so that was one of the discoveries with the 11 and that made it kind of unique compared to what we had initially been uh, maybe imagining for the lineup there, but then developed a, a six mil plate underfoot of that that metal uh, right there because again, I mean, even if they're on the eleven and hopefully in the more aspirational side of snow conditions, there are definitely days that those guys are grabbing those skis when it is it is not like that and and needing to have that stability directly underfoot. So now fast forward, this was all kind of last year going through the prototyping and, and yeah. testing phase there. Uh, I am close to thinking that the Russell 11 might be one of the best skis that we've we've made to date. I mean, having it in the hands of like Noah Gaffney and Connery Lundeen and Tom Pfeiffer, who, I mean, all these guys, again, who ski the Russell 11 in its current iteration have no reason to see a need to change it and are doing things on those skis, the new ones now, that they literally could not have done on the old ones and, mm -hmm. and sending messages on the weekly of like, this thing is insane. I have not mm -hmm. found the, the top top speed limit of it i've not found a thing it it doesn't excel at when i need it to to push but at the same time like skiing with a significant other and like need to go slow like it is not going to be that that chargey demanding machine on the other end there so i think uh, of some of the skis like this one might have one of the bigger windows that, that hmm. we've been able to develop for top end performance but also like if you just need a, a wide soft snow ski like Russell 11's there for you too so yeah I'm, I'm quite proud of that ski and and the execution there is a representation of what can be done when you you kind of put a lot of trust in your athletes and, and your user group um, and and just kind of meet what they need because you know they want a ski that doesn't just destroy them every day as well so in some ways they're looking out for the commercial interest even if it's not what they're thinking about too so help me understand whether it was the specific design brief or you just got done saying there were a number of prototypes and then you ended up with a Russell 11. So I don't know which came first. Like this, these are the specific targets we're going for with a revamped Russell 11 or is just where you ended up. Were you trying to make the ski lighter? Were you trying to reduce swing weight? Like what did you end up with as like, You've already said rocker profile, actually quite similar. Were you just trying to open up? I mean, we're, it's funny because we've already been talking about this with respect to the Rustler 9 and 10 about the versatility and expanding that versatility. Let me hear you one more time sort of say, well, this is what we were going for with the new 11. 
So with the with the history that we'd had with these skis, again, like them being in the line relatively unchanged for seven years, we felt the need. Typically, you write a category level brief of like, here's the line of skis we want to make. Here's who it's for. Here's here's roughly the construction we think might meet that user group. And then typically the engineers take the brief and go, these guys are a bunch of idiots. This is what you really need <laughs> and kind of go back and forth with them. In this case, with Russell and Shiva, we literally wrote a brief by model. So nine had a specific brief, 10 had a specific brief. And importantly to this conversation, 11 had a specific brief. And in this case, 11 was very much like, you know, Selling a lot of these would be great, but most importantly, we need like this of any of the models would be the tip of the spear type of ski there. And it was basically the place we started from a testing standpoint, knowing that was really what we needed to work uh, maybe the most on, not necessarily because we felt like there was the most to change, but there was the most we needed to get right per se that like, Mm -hmm. you know, if the 11 doesn't work, the 10 will inherently suffer because we don't have people representing Russell on the on the highest level of skiing here. So going back and forth with uh, with the brief there, I mean, we had the same list of, of things we wanted to solve, the hinging underfoot, the kind of inconsistent feeling of, of those skis uh, with the amount of stability right underfoot, but then kind of like a really loose tip and tail that even if they're, of course, soft snow playful skis, like there's a limit to, to how fast you can go when they when they don't feel necessarily balanced all the way through the full tip and tail there. So again, going back and forth with the athletes, going back and forth with the the design teams of, of their feedback and what we'd we'd set up as the brief, we landed in this place where we got true blend, we got flux form, we got a lot of substantive improvements that solved those those kind of hinging or inconsistent power kind of distribution feelings that they'd had. And even if the rocker profile is quite similar to the, the one we had before, it is definitely a different feeling ski that that hopefully, and again, sort of what I was trying to describe there, like elevates that that top end, like the window opens wider, but we haven't necessarily alienated that that mm-hmm. bottom end there, that intermediate level skier as well. Gotcha. Okay. It's funny, of all of the three rustlers, while the eleven was absolutely my favorite of the of the nine, ten, and eleven, I've now spent the most time on the nine and ten, the new nine and ten, and I only have like one day on the eleven. So um, mm. I need to I need to go you know catch up here. <laughs> anyway, um, next really important question: Talk about you've been saying things like the Rustler and Shiva eleven. So let's get real clear on this. What are the similarities and what are the differences between the Rustler skis and the Shiva skis? Yeah, and this is where so the original Rustlers and Shivas were, were were launched back in 2016, 2017. There, like I said, we had just began a, a women to women initiative in uh, 2015. There, headed up by Leslie Baker Brown, who's worked for Technica for for <laughs> let's say longer than I've been on, on this earth. So she's got quite a bit of experience with the brands and, and specifically recognizing the need to, to develop product with women for women. So even if the Women to Women program was launched in 2015, we were just at the very beginning of understanding what we could do from a, a specific design standpoint to build women's skis. So the prior versions of Russell and Shiva were almost identical skis. I mean, they had a slight high cut difference between the two to make one a little softer, a little... Uh, uh, like less requiring a, a heavier skier or typically a male on the Shiva skis, but metal layup, fiberglass layup, um, carbon fiber layup, like all of those were identical skis for all intents and purposes. 
So as we began the process of, of working on the new ones with uh, not only a lot more understanding under our belts of what we could do to specifically optimize product for women, but also like a much more built out women's athlete team in Kate Zella, Felice Sogstad, as well as a, 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 a kind of feedback network of, um, you know, intermediate skiers all the way through the, the people I just described at the very tip there to be able to, to recognize some of the, the shortcomings within the industry of product for them and then give us feedback as we're going through the design process of these new skis. So we've talked about Shiva with uh, Russell here because the, the waist widths are, are, are the same throughout, but the constructions in every single model of every single size are, are quite different from a Russell. So Let's start with the construction side of things. They share the, the tetanol that runs up either side there and then is not connected to the tip and tail. It is specific to the 9, 10, and 11 with different uh, widths of tetanol. Underfoot, however, in the rustlers, there's a third layer of metal, again, not to, not connected to those other two pieces, but a third layer of metal underfoot there. In the Shiba skis, we exchange that for a layer of fiberglass. What that allows is metal, as much as it makes a ski feel damp, it does require a certain amount of mass pushing on that ski to get it to bend, to get it to, to, to achieve that layer, that level of dampness versus just feeling heavy and, and strong there. Um, so exchanging that layer of metal for a layer of glass allows a, 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 a typical woman who is often, you know, a, a decent bit, even if she <laughs> outskis the man by a mile, is typically lighter than the man. Um, to bend that ski a little bit easier and, and a little bit more freely than say the one with, with tetanol in it. So that's a construction difference between the two and the feedback has been unequivocally awesome from the, the women's group that just feel like those are some of the most playful and, and uh, balanced consistent skis they've ever been on. And the other part of that is stealing a little bit of what we've, we've learned from the like products like black Pearl and Phoenix in our, in our front side line of skis, which is, Typically, the weight distribution where, where women will carry their weight, often it's a little bit lower down, a little bit further back because they'll have wider hips than, than, say, the average male. And the result of that is if you put them in the typical mount point on a, on a, that would otherwise be led to from a, say, a 180 on a men's model when you're, when you're developing it, they're going to be a little bit far back in the ski and their weight distribution is not going to be necessarily right in the exact spot for the, the flex profile or the side cut of the ski. So what we've been doing for some time on, again, those black pearls and Phoenix that I described, but now had the opportunity to bring it to Shiva was to develop women's specific molds that move that mount point and the side cut forward because it's not super beneficial when you just move a mount point forward without the side cut coming with it because the two are need to be connected to one another for the, the ski to work properly. So having the specific molds in all of the, the Shiva models there also allows those skis to, again, better function specifically for women with that construction that we've put in there. Then, of course, they have specific true blend wood cores. Again, the notion of true blend aside from the allowing us to, to uh, put different woods in the skis to tune it for a front side ski or an all mountain ski also allows us to specifically build a, a Shiva 11 in a way that is completely different from a Shiva 10 from a Shiva 9. And again, working with the women's group there to tune by model, by size, exactly what that that user needs at every size and every model there for, for where they're using it. So you know, it's it's another representation of of the 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 pride and the execution that you can achieve when you know specifically Leslie Baker Brown is working with the women's group there again, listening to feedback and and bringing it to the design and engineering team with clear problems to solve that they can then solve through design and, and execution. And another point of clarification: you're talking about tuning a ski, right, with True Blend and and these cores. When we're talking about different 
lengths of the Shivas or different lengths of the rustlers. Every different length, or let's go from shortest to longest, every single model will be tuned differently. True or it'll false? Have a, it'll have a different setup of the wood core. Absolutely. And it solves one of the inherent problems that, you know, you could take a bona fide if you can find one from uh, six or seven years ago and and flex the 189 uh, and like, okay, tip and tail, pretty soft, underfoot, super stout, like away you go. Clearly a, a powerful, fun ski here. Go grab that 165 that doesn't have true blend and that thing is going to really feel pretty stiff all the way tip to tail. And what's happening is that when you have to make a ski shorter, you don't have the space within that ski to really thin out that wood core the way you'd want to, to allow it to have kind of the ramp up of, of curve of power of flex. And so what true blend allows is you can maintain the thickness that you need to, to maintain all the material science and have the, the inserts you need in the tip and tail to fill up the mold, but you still allow it to be soft in the tip and tail there and build the, the power curve the way you'd want to. So back to, to kind of what's happening with these skis is we're able to now build a, a 180 Shiba 11 for Kate Zellup that's got all the horsepower and strength you could possibly want, but then take it all the way down to the size like 146 in the Shiba 9 where that's a very short ski. It's tough to get a lot of materials in a, in a 140 centimeter ski there, but still allow it to have that kind of balanced flex profile that you weren't really able to achieve when you had, let's say, uniform materials running tip to tail. And the only thing you could do to control the flex was mill it differently. Gotcha. Okay. Um, <coughs> excuse me. This might be a good segue into my next question. This is one we've gotten a lot. Uh, we've been asked a lot about this. Um, the Hustle series, right? Um, and I'd like to have you just talk a bit about this. I mean, correct me if I've got this wrong, but Hustle was... Hustle is being positioned as more of that 50-50 ski. You can ski mm -hmm. it in the resort. You want to go side country or use it as a back country ski, you know, put a hybrid binding on it. There you go. And, you know, we, um, have at blister a 188 centimeter hustle 11. And our weight on that is 2,150 grams. We have a 186 centimeter 23, 24 next year, rustler 11, that's coming in at 2090 grams, actually just a bit lighter than the Hustle 11. So there's been a lot of questions about, wait a second, the, the quote unquote inbounds ski, the Rustler 11 is actually a bit lighter than the quote unquote 50-50 ski Hustle 11. Explain please. <laughs> um a lot of it, well, all of it has to do with the the metal layup of those skis and the conditions we're hoping or design them to 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 be used in. So those hustle skis are built out of the former molds of Russell and Shiva. So that nine's ninety two, that ten's one hundred two, and they have the uh, the eleven's one twelve, and they have the rocker profiles that that we've described previously. 
again, all of the power and strength that came from those those previous wrestlers, meaning the success of them being very soft snow oriented, kind of a lot of rocker in those skis, felt exactly like what we wanted to have in Hustle. So we used those same lower shapes, but then removed all of the metal of those skis and just developed specific freeride true blend wood cores that, of course, I mean, we've talked about, allowed us to, to put the power and flex that we want to have within there. The reason we talk about those in terms of being 50-50 skis, even if the weight profile uh, happens to put a, a hustle slightly heavier than, than say, a rustler, is because of the, the gearing towards certain conditions. So with that rustler ski, We've mentioned a couple times, like how it can be a daily driver in certain situations and how, you know, even if the, the conditions are challenging or, or, or technical, like you've got that metal, you've got that dampness, you've got the stability and control within that ski to be able to ski those conditions. Hustle being a backcountry ski, the notion and, and why we're talking about them as 50-50 skis, why we're encouraging people to, to put walking type of bindings on those skis is because they will not have the same top end speed or resilience to those firm conditions. The hope being that people, if they're going to, to put the effort into walk up into the backcountry to get to a certain terrain is that hopefully they're chasing after some softer snow and they, mm -hmm. they can have that different feeling of a ski that comes from a lack of metal. Plus or minus a couple grams felt like within the world, especially when someone's probably putting a, uh, uh, say, an ATK binding on a Hustle versus a Jester Pro on a Rustler. Like yep. the weight ends up working itself out in the binding world. But the feeling of the ski in a Hustle versus a Rustler being much more geared to that soft snow kind of uh, backcountry type of conditions versus, say, a Rustler that as much as we talk about soft snow is in, in the end, like as we've mentioned a couple times out here, also intended to to be able to, to stand up when you mash a rock or, or hit some ice or hit some variable conditions there versus a hustle that for sure like doesn't have that same resilience to hitting those variable conditions. Gotcha. Okay. Just to try to be clear. So what you're saying is don't worry so much about the specific weight of these things. Sure, they're similar. You are claiming that that hustle is just going to respond differently and perform differently in softer conditions than the rustler will. So somebody out there who's like, oh, I'm a genius. I'm gonna save me 60 grams off the weights I just read by, by mounting up an ATK binding with the rustler 11, you are saying you're actually, yeah, you saved a few grams, but you are going to be choosing different downhill performance characteristics in soft snow. Absolutely. I mean, there is a reason that, let's say, in my garage or or amongst the other people here who have the benefit of having a few pairs of skis, have both in the line because there is a reason, even if the, the weight profiles are quite similar, for them to be used in different situations. And again, that like you've said, that hustle being much more geared to the soft snow, not hitting some ice and some and some variable conditions compared to a a rustler that has that metal has that density has that strength to kind of hold up to those conditions if you were to flex a a, a hustle 11 versus a rustler 11 they will also even just at the shop floor level feel quite different to to one another and again for all of the reasons we've described so far okay so is it as simple to say that the Hustle 11 is more optimized for deep snow flotation. Yes. Unequivocally, He's, yeah. And that's wow, Christian, he, almost, he actually almost broke his neck. He was <laughs> nodding so vigorously with that, with that comment. Okay, okay. okay yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay, well, I think 
I think you've done a really nice job today. Um, pressing Thank hard you. into the details and some of the new stuff. Maybe just a couple points. We, we talked about this earlier when you kind of walked us through, you know, the, the, the different lines um, in the Blizzard collection. But so then as we're talking about this Hustle series, you'd also mentioned the Zero G series. So Hustle skis versus Zero G skis. Yeah, and and zero G or or touring in general. I mean, uh, of collections and of categories, this is actually aside from hustle that was launched only a year or two ago, is still one of the newer categories for Blizzard. We've been yeah. so centric into that free ride and all mountain, and, and of course, you know, kind of front side side of things. That this is only the eighth year we've even had touring skis under the the Blizzard uh, franchise here. So. Very much a, a kind of uh, had been a walk before you run type of deal, and now feeling like really running in a in a pretty good way here. And so, zero G at this point has now become one of those lines within within the overall scheme of Blizzard that is as important as the All Mountain and, and Freeride line of skis because of what we've been able to achieve or, or, or what people have kind of recognized our, our particular take on the touring line there. And so, I mean, the lineup of skis we have here, we kind of mentioned it's 85, 95, and 105, kind of three three main waist widths within the lineup there. Much more weight-centric than a hustle. Yeah. Like if somebody's kind of coming from this hustle conversation and going back and forth between Russell and hustle, the moment you you start bringing a zero G in there, you're having a different weight conversation. That's like right. we're going to yeah, we're going to farther away peaks where we're have different objectives than uh than say a hustle, for example. And with all that, I mean, it was trying to bring a, a notion of skis that like metals, the last conversation you're having in a, in a touring line of skis, but you're trying to achieve some of that similar feeling, but in different ways. So zero G occupying that weight space and using a construction that was trying to still feel stable and consistent. I mean, you talked earlier about a ski that doesn't have a lot of side cut because you're probably poking your way down a really technical line there. I mean, that's zero G all day long is, is a ski that is really lightweight, doesn't have a lot of side cut because you don't want it to have that feeling of hooking up and trying to turn on you as you're, as you're hop turning your way down an icy cooler. And yeah, again, as, as somebody only to contextualize it with the hustle conversation is kind of looking for their next pair of uphill skis. This would be much more like the, the far off technical objective where, you know, you have no way of knowing what the snow conditions are going to be in that cooler, whether it was wind affected or icy or hopefully yeah. really soft snow if you get lucky with it. That's the line of skis here and again i mean it's it's hard to imagine that uh eight years ago when we launched a a touring line of skis that it would have grown into the the level of success that it has for us Mm -hmm. here but yeah at this point i mean we're we're also quite proud of what what zero g has become and certainly uh some influences in the world the last couple years that maybe made people search to get further away from the resort has also helped with that but yeah yeah, definitely it wouldn't uh as people are kind of looking at their overall quiver here like definitely not not to sleep on the zero g skis either and then last thing, I think we should, we've, we've mentioned it briefly a few times, but the Black Pearl series, um, unchanged for next season, but just say a word about where those skis are, the models, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, maybe the the best representation of of the power and and, and success that can come from from the women's group when when you kind of put a a category in their hands and and kind of leave it at that, like blank piece of paper. What is it we need to do? And 
So those skis, I mean, they're now on their probably fifth iteration since they were since the first Black Pearl ski was launched, you know, way, way back in 2011 there. Uh, but now at this point, I mean, it has been the best selling ski, specifically the Black Pearl 88 in the world for the last five years in a row. And I think if you talk to anyone who, who was bringing this little startup brand of Blizzard into uh, the U.S. in 2007 there, like that's not uh, not something anyone would be like, yeah, that, that seems attainable. Like we could get to a place where we could say that right like definitely not so black pearl at this at this point i mean is one of the best representations of listening to women developing product that is that is by women for women has its own full ground up construction that is shared with nothing else in the line has women specific molds and at this point is coming in three different waist widths an 82 and 88 and a 97 there and has has very much taken a life onto uh of its own at this point i mean people walk into a shop and don't know the name blizzard but do know the name or or brand black pearl and just ask for it directly there so again i mean I've, i feel like i've said a couple times like how proud we are of, of what we've done here i mean that's for sure the case but also like the in black pearl in the case of black pearl in particular like also humbled on the other side of of the the success those skis have had and and you know the recognition that uh they've gotten for for again building a product that specifically meets the needs that were brought to the design team and the engineering team to try and and, and have something that was specifically built to meet the needs of women in the all-mountain category there christian well done um yeah i uh Appreciate you fielding some questions today. And, and I really think you did a nice job of detailing the differences through those rustler skis and, and uh, been a lot of good information today. And so it's uh, kind of what we like on Gear 30. So I think job well done. Well, cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Um, I'll let you back to your evening now. But uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time. It was great having you at the summit. And I'm really looking forward to uh, we're, we're actually this will drop this friday you and i are talking wednesday afternoon and we'll be rolling out the first of our panel session videos from the summit uh starting this friday but i'm really looking forward to for people to hear the panel session that you were a part of i thought that was a really cool one um so uh yeah, that was that was good fun. That was uh, an interesting panel, I think, just even from the the group we had on there. I mean, yeah. it was such a different demographic or background of of how people are approaching product and and the brands that they're working for. Yeah, I thought there was some really interesting comments from that that panel session. Yeah, so you get Christian today, but you got Christian coming up probably uh, in a few weeks uh, uh, as we roll <laughs> out our uh, Blister Summit videos. So um, more more Christian Avery in your life coming soon. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, I don't know if that you. was I don't know if that was a warning or like you know a, a what what exactly that was, but uh, no. Um, well, I appreciate being on here. I, I know you've had, uh, obviously, a, a whirlwind post-summit there. So, I appreciate mm. the time and glad we got to, to catch up here. Absolutely. All right, sir. Be well. Enjoy wrapping up your season here on the East Coast. And yeah, we'll talk to you again real soon. Sounds good. Look forward to it. All right. Well, it is now time for our crashes and close calls segment. And I'm afraid to say that this week, the story is mine. Um, the good news is this is not some massive catastrophic thing, but the bad news is it's actually something I do need to go get checked out and, well, let me tell you what happened. So it's probably been three to four weeks ago now. We were out 
shooting some photos. It was an incredible pow day here in Crested Butte. Actually, I was on the Meyer Leaper. So if you're really curious, you can go look at the photos in our posted review of the Meyer Leaper, and you will see exactly how good that day was. Well, the very first lap of the day, Luke Kappa was like, hey, do you see that incredible looking pillow? Go throw a slash turn right on that thing. And I was like, all right, looks good. Actually, the whole mountain looked incredible. So I came in, not crazy hot, but with some speed, tried to do a slash turn on this pillow. Turns out that pillow was a rock and it was quite jarring, but nothing crazy. We skied the rest of the afternoon, got a bunch of, I think, quite good photos. But the next morning woke up and my back was kind of a wreck. And it's kind of been a wreck ever since that day. And then just over a week ago, it um, seized up on me real bad. I was actually skiing Phoenix Chute. My back locked up. That was kind of excruciating. And now I've been like babying this thing like crazy. I can still ski with it, but it's not good. And something is clearly off. And so I do what I will sometimes do. I checked in with our reviewer, Sasha Anastas, who is also a physician assistant. Her thought is that there's a good chance that this is now a bulging disc issue. And she's like, if you don't get this checked out and it is a bulging disc, well, a bulging disc could turn into a herniated disc and then you're likely headed to surgery. So unfortunately, but fortunately... I think I'm going to be making use of my own spot insurance and going to, at a minimum, see a physical therapist, get their assessment. Hopefully, it's not the start of a bulging disc, but like I said, we're now looking at three to four weeks into this, and this injury really isn't getting better. In the past, this is absolutely something I would have just ignored, and because I'm busy, I've already kind of let it go three to four weeks, which I shouldn't have. But this is why we keep talking about the value of our Blister Plus Spot insurance, this membership, where for $399 for 12 months of coverage, when something like this happens, you can actually go get checked out, and this is not going to cost me anything. It's a legitimate issue. I need to get it checked out. And I will be able to send this bill to spot rather than paying out of pocket until my very high deductible were to finally get met on this. Um, Our reviewer, Dylan Wood, told a similar story. He had a bit of an accident happen to him. He used this as an opportunity, given his Blister Plus Spot membership, to go actually get checked out rather than ignore an injury and then have it turn into a much worse injury and a much more expensive injury. So this is why we keep pushing this issue and hoping that you, our blister community, will get this blister spot coverage or at least be real certain that you have some sort of coverage that isn't going to leave you with a super high bill or isn't going to stop you from going to seek out treatment in the first place when you need it. So we will include a link with all the specifics and the details in the show notes of this episode. But yeah, 
that's my crashes and close calls story. And I guess in this case, it's both kind of a crash story and kind of a close call story. But I am feeling particularly grateful that um, there's no reason why I can't go actually seek out treatment for this thing and hopefully get myself back to 100%. Now, just to wrap things up with our what we're celebrating this week, well, I'm going to Alaska for the first time in my life. I'm actually headed there on April 8th. I'm going to go out there, see my great friend, Paul Forward, our blister reviewer, Paul Forward. We're going to get to ski with Paul for the first time on his home turf. And I think that means we're going to be doing a mix heli skiing. And I really want to check out Alieska Resort while I'm there. And we might get in a little bit of touring. We'll see. Um, We'll see what the conditions hold. But I'm extremely psyched to be getting out there. And I'm actually going to be getting out there with a number of good friends and also Blister members. Uh, Some folks that if you were at our Blister Summit, you would have met these folks. And also Mike McCabe, the owner of Folsom Custom Skis. So we're going to be testing some stuff out there and it should be a blast. Now, I'm just going to say this. We actually have, it looks like, one last open spot on this trip. And if you got all the way to the end of this Gear 30 episode and you are still listening and you like the sound of going to Alaska with me and Mike McCabe and Paul Forward and doing some heli skiing with Chugach Powder Guides out there, well, we got one spot, and I think there's a few people, they're likely going to claim this, but who knows? Hit me up if you like, and maybe you go to Alaska with us. Um, we're heading there on April 8th, and we should be flying April 9th through the 15th. That's our fly window, and then also sneaking in maybe a day or two at Alieska Ski Resort, and uh, perhaps a day or two of touring. We're going to see, but um, uh, yeah some flying with CPG. Send me a note if you're interested, want some more information. And that then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30, which means that I can now go upstairs and I am going to grab an ambulation beer from New Image Brewing to celebrate the end of this day and the end of this episode. But just before I do that, I want to say thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. Thanks to Christian Avery for the great conversation. And thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying conversations like this, where we take you into the gear dorkery weeds more than you will get anywhere in the world, then please do leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And that just allows us to keep this whole show going and growing. So that's all we've got for you today. I hope you have a phenomenal weekend. And this coming Monday, we've got Cody Townsend back on the Blister podcast because it's time for Cody and me to once again review the news. So enjoy the weekend. And then Monday morning, it's reviewing the news time with me and Cody over on our Blister podcast. All right, everybody, take great care. Talk to you soon.